My name is Zach Price, and you're listening to the Emerald Podcast Network. Hello, you're listening to the Emerald Podcast Network. I am Frankie Lewis, a news writer with the Daily Emerald. Welcome to Season 3 of Spotlight on Science. In this series, members of the University of Oregon science community sit down and talk about their research and current events in their field in a language that we can all understand. We have a doozy of a guest today, Dr. Bob Goldberg, director of the new Knight Campus at UO. We discussed his career prior to his new position, the future of regenerative medicine, his goals for the new Knight Campus, and more. Let's get to it. Well, thank you so much for, for coming down today. I really appreciate it. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, of course. I mean, I think there's there's so many things to talk about, obviously. I wanted to start with your career because I feel like, I mean, you're the director of the Knight Campus and you're this, this huge position now at the university, but um, you weren't always that way. I mean, you were, you started at um, University of Michigan, I believe. Do you remember any specific projects you were working on while you were there? Yeah, frankly, I'm not that old. I, I, I remember <laughs> back to undergrad. Um, yeah, I, I, was, uh, I was a mechanical engineer at uh, University of Michigan, but I was thinking about medical school. Mm. And so I always like to tell people I was, you know, a, a typical confused undergraduate trying to figure out what my pathway yeah. in life was going to be. Who right? isn't, right? Yeah. yeah. And um, I, I started knocking on some doors to, you know, get some research experience mm-hmm. to try and make that decision. And I ended up in a uh, orthopedic research lab, started working with a surgeon, a, a shoulder surgeon, on uh, trying to figure out, you know, how does it, how does a shoulder stay in its joint, you know, hmm. and when it gets injured, what does he need to be fixing to yeah. uh, best serve his patients? And so it just it was my first experience of an interdisciplinary collaboration where uh, somebody with a medical background and a medical problem, yeah. uh, you know, was working with an engineer, and, and we designed a, a study to to figure this out. And published a really cool paper on you know, dynamic and static stabilizers at the shoulder, hmm. and so that kind of just got me excited about the thrill of doing research. And yeah. I stayed on through. Grad. And this was all, yeah. So that was all still through undergrad. Yeah, that was undergrad. That I was mean, that undergrad. seems like a pretty intense project to take on as an undergrad. I mean, was it was it hard for you? Was it? Um, I mean, was it your first research experience ever in undergrad? It or? was. Yeah, it was definitely yeah. my first research experience and probably, uh, you know, a little more unusual back then. Now I think there's a lot that's more true. opportunities yeah. for undergrads. Yeah. And that's actually one of my passions is uh, I absolutely love involving undergraduates in research. And uh, we're in the middle of designing a, a program in the night campus that will provide those opportunities. And not just for summer, you know, a real research experience where uh, students can really figure out, is this the right pathway for them? And and do not just a protocol, like a science protocol, but actually get involved in some research where you don't know what the answer is. Yeah. And and maybe, you know, earn their way as an author on a paper. Because that's the tough research is when you don't really know the answer. I mean, it's easy to do like a lab project in biology class when you kind of you know what the results are kind of supposed to look like. But when you're really in the lab and you're really looking for those answers, it can be much more difficult, as I'm sure you've experienced. So, yeah, that's, um, I mean, that's real research. Yeah, I, I always exactly. like to say in research, perseverance is more important than brilliance. Mm, you know, it's, yeah. it's good to be have both. But, yeah. You know, <laughs> sticking to it is really Exactly. Important. Yeah. When did you kind of know you wanted to be more um, of a bioengineer rather than a mechanical engineer? 
Yeah, I think that happened with that initial research experience. Uh, mm-hmm. I, you know, I kind of got into it for the reason a lot of people go into biomedical engineering is it's. I was pretty good in math and science, but I also had this inclination to want to do things that helped people. And I think that's you know how a lot of students end up in the biomedical engineering field. Yeah, and that like, did you have biology in the background? I mean, did you take biology classes? Because I mean, mechanical engineer to me. It's really technical. It's it's not a lot of like you're not integrating. I mean a lot of like biology stuff. So it, it seems like kind of a an interesting connection that you'd kind of take that route. Yeah, I, I always had an interest in in medicine, and yeah, I, I actually initially had been admitted to a seven year program that would have done undergrad through medical school, mm. and then wasn't wow. sure about it, and so I, I kind of stepped out of that and did the research experience instead. And then ended up going into graduate school also at Michigan and ended up getting four degrees there. I just went undergrad through through postdoc. And so. hmm. What do you classify yourself as now in terms of like your research side? Like what would you call yourself if someone asked you, like, what, you know, what are you basically? Sure. Yeah, I'm a biomedical engineer, okay. but um, my research is in regenerative medicine and mechanobiology. So what does that mean? It means I work on you know, stem cells, biomaterials, growth factors for repairing either degenerated or, or traumatized tissues. Right. I, I do some work with the military on injured uh, military personnel. Uh, do a lot of NIH work as mm. well. And so to do that, I had to take it a step further. You know, we, we talked about, you know, working with the clinician. But then yeah. when I went to go do my postdoc after my Ph.D., I knew engineering, I knew some of the clinical problems, but I didn't have any biology. And right, so right. I got to do a really cool thing. I went out um, on Cape Cod to a very famous lab called the Marine Biology Laboratory, and I studied there over the summer. And it was like seven days a week immersion oh, yeah. in molecular biology. Really intense, yeah. Yeah, working with marine organisms. You know, we were taking optic nerves out of squid and studying Oof, gene yeah. expression. Yeah, yeah, And then taking the rest of the squid and fishing off Wait, the some of those marine biology organisms, I mean, the stuff that lives in the ocean is like, Beyond comprehension very sometimes. Cool yeah. Yeah, very cool stuff. Yeah. And then I did, you know, came back and did a molecular biology. So that yeah. that does not make me a molecular biologist, but right. what what's really important when you're working between disciplines disciplines is be able to communicate with people. And so if you can speak the language of biologists, even if you're not a biologist, that allows you to work at these interfaces. And that's those interfaces are really where a lot of the exciting work is happening. Yeah. So that you touch on a perfect point. What's one of my questions is what's kind of the one of the coolest regenerative medicine related things you've like seen or read lately. Cause I always like asking, you know, professionals in their field, like you guys are always reading all this stuff, all this material to keep your kind of not get, get your knowledge base. What's like the most recent thing you've seen that's really like, got your attention. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's a really cool time to be in the regenerative medicine field. Yeah. It really started 25 years ago, mm-hmm. but it takes that long to get to the point where things are actually getting through the science and actually starting to get into people. And so probably the best example right now is that uh, we're curing cancer, some forms of cancer. And that is regenerative medicine because it's uh, it's an area called cancer immunotherapies in which we're taking patients' own cells, taking them out of the body, their immune cells, and training them to recognize their tumors, putting them back in. And, and uh, children with leukemia are now being cured at an 85% rate. Wow. So it's, you know, it's a... 
amazing time in history yeah. where we're actually for the first time coming up with cures to incurable diseases like yeah. that. It raises other challenges though because the cost of treating a patient like that is about a million dollars. Yeah. And yeah. you know, if if you were to have the option to cure a child of, of cancer for a million dollars, you would say, absolutely, yes, go for it, right? But if you think about our whole healthcare system, that's not really affordable yeah. to make it so that everybody can have that yeah. treatment. And so where the engineering is now coming in is you take the people that are do manufacturing for a living, right, and they make manufacturing cheaper for things like cars and airplanes. Mm. And now all those technologies are being applied to making these cells oh, to bring wow, down okay. the cost so that more people can have it. So I mean, is it difficult to get those people on board with the biology concept? Because you're not just making a, you know, making a car engine is different from making like a living cell. I mean, that's a totally different feeling, like almost emotionally would be, I feel like. Yeah, that's a great question. And, and you're absolutely right yeah. because you're manufacturing something that's living and adapting yeah. every time you do something on it. You know, you probably know we take cells and we culture them typically. Yeah. Our, plastic, you know, dishes, right? Well, petri dish, yeah. Petri dish, yeah. Even, even just putting them down that surface changes the cell. And so doing that and learning how to make them reproducibly and low cost is really, is really cool. The, the other quick example I'll give you is from my own yeah. research. We are doing work now with, with the military where we're looking at uh, severe extremity trauma. So this is the most common injury that soldiers have because their bodies and their heads are fully protected, but their, right. lim their limbs get injured. Yeah. And so, first of all, physicians have to make a decision. Do they try to salvage the limb, which, you know, many procedures and painful for the patient? Yeah. Or do they, you know, do an amputation and, and, and uh, give a prosthetic? And so we're working on technologies where we can take blood samples early in the process and based on their immune cells and, and proteins in the blood, predict whether they're going to be mm. a patient that's likely to go on to heal or not. Mm. And then use that information to develop new intervention strategies. So, what? How do you know if a patient's going to be more likely to be able to regrow? I mean, is there like risk factors associated with that? Or uh, you probably know, for example, smokers, right? Are, yeah. Are, okay. are less likely to heal well. Yeah. Uh, but what we're understanding is that the immune system is underlying a, a lot of diseases and also our our sort of regenerative capacity. So if you have uh, these certain types of cells in, in your bloodstream that are suppressing your immune system, you're much less likely to be mm. able to heal properly. Mm. And so we're working on some nanoparticle technologies that you would inject and would basically suppress or, or kill part of the suppressor cells to mm. basically boost the immune system huh. and hopefully you know, uh, raise the regenerative capacity for those patients. And what is the regenerative capacity right now? I mean, how, how much can you regenerate from someone? Like, yeah, that's a great question. Yeah. Well, if you're a newt, you can, you can, you can regenerate <laughs> a lot, right? You know, yeah. you've probably seen those pictures. A, a newt, oh, you, sure. you can, can lose a limb and yeah. regrow it in like 20 days. It's, yeah. it's crazy. Um, so there's, you know, a lot of research trying to look at even some here in zebrafish models, mm -hmm. look at why that happens in some organisms and not mammalian systems. Mammalian systems are more set up to scar. And, you know, this is because, in you know, when we were cave people and running around and saber-toothed tiger was chasing us. You yeah. didn't have time to regenerate. You right. just need to scar and get away. It takes a lot of energy to do that. That's yeah. right. So our, our ability to regenerate is limited. Um, you know, bones are able to regenerate better than some other tissues. Uh, joints and things like that uh, degrade. But uh, it's an interesting question whether we can turn mammals in more like the organisms that have a higher regenerative capacity. Yeah. So, I mean, let's say like I 
lose a like the top of my pinky or something. You know, we had a point where we could graft enough muscle tissue and skin tissue on that to where I could regrow the tip of my pinky or is, are we not even there yet? Or could I regrow the entire finger? You know, like what, what's the scale we're, we're looking at? Yeah. So if you were to cut off the tip of your finger before the joint, so mm-hmm. not all the way to the joint, right? we actually have enough repair capacity that a lot of times that will regenerate mm. on its own. Mm. And so sometimes you'll see some videos online of this you know, these treatments that are regenerating the tip of the finger. Well, yeah. sometimes that just happens. We have enough right. capacity to do that. So without uh, without any, like, without, yeah, yeah, without just your body. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And again, you know, some people have higher regenerative capacity right. than others. Sure. Um, what we're working on is more, you know, if you have a, you get in a car accident or, or you know, a soldier gets shot mm-hmm. and they're missing a big piece of bone and muscle and so forth, can we uh, develop biomaterial scaffolds that are porous and degradable and implant those with proteins, potentially the patient's own cells, and regrow large segments of tissues that are missing uh, in the in the body. And and we're we're getting to the point where we can do that pretty well. Uh, we can regrow, you know, say three centimeters of bone now that's missing. Wow. And that's a that's a pretty big hunk yeah. of bone. Yeah, it is. Where do you see the fields um, of regenerative medicine or maybe bioengineering in general in ten years in the future? You'd say. Yeah, that's a great question. I think uh, one area is cell therapies that's just growing like crazy. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, the, the cancer area has provided a, a huge success story, and so there's billions of dollars that are flowing into that now, companies and intellectual property. Mm-hmm. I think a really important area that's going to help the field a lot is if we can develop what's being called a universal stem cell. Mm-hmm. So if, um, about 12 years ago, there was the discovery that you could take skin cells or any cells from the adult and basically genetically engineer them so that they can go back to being fundamentally very much like an embryonic stem cell. Hmm. Have you noticed, sir, the embryonic stem cell debate is kind of settled it's down? It's settled down, yeah, yeah, definitely. And that's really because we almost don't need embryonic stem cells anymore hmm. because you can take a patient's own cells and uh, turn it back into something that's very right. close to an embryonic stem cell. But to really make these things useful from a, from a clinical perspective, you'd love to be able to have just a store, a bank of universal cells that wouldn't be rejected in a patient, right? Yeah. And that you could thr- uh, print a new organ or a new kidney out of those cells and, and that's transplant why, it. That's why people were so obsessed with the embryonic stem cells for a while is because they were the closest thing to that we had. Is that yeah. correct? Yeah, because you know we all have stem cells in our body, yeah. but a lot of them are limited in what they can do. Sure. You know, I, I, I often think about it as you know when you're a baby, you have the potential to be anything. Right? Yeah. By the time you're in high school, you've kind of started to differentiate a little bit what yeah. you're going to be in life. A lot of our stem cells in our adult body are like that high school student. Yeah. And and what we discovered was that you could turn them back into the you know the baby with full potential to make anything. So for you know a lot of things like the brain disorders, you need that full potential to have an impact. Right. Right. Here's a follow up. Where do you see the field in 50 years? Whew, 50 years. <laughs> Uh, this is where you can get a little fun. <laughs> this, this is where you got to look at some of the science, science, uh, science fiction movies. Yeah, exactly. Um, well, I mean, you know, gene editing is a very interesting area. It's an exciting technology. It's also a little bit of a scary technology. Yeah. It's a great example of an area where we really need to bring people from the social sciences, humanities, bioethicists, so, and so forth, into the conversation so we can talk about this. Uh, because it's it's something that is 
it's going to be with us now. Yeah. And it has great potential to potentially cure genetic diseases now. Yeah. And so it's it's already being used for that, at least for the diseases where it's maybe just one defect. Yeah. A lot of diseases are multiple Multi, defects. Yeah. And, and so, you know, that's a little bit harder. But certain diseases are, you're right. I mean, certain diseases are, it's like one gene that's off and that's right. it. That's all it takes. Right. So. Sickle cell anemia yeah. is, you know, a good, a good example of that. Mm-hmm. And there's still some off-target safety problems. But, you know, you can think of gene editing being used for purposes that aren't ethical too. Yeah. And so that's Definitely. that opens a lot of interesting conversations. But I think in 50 years... It'll certainly be uh, the potential will be there for us yeah. to go beyond having genetic disorders. Yeah, I mean the, the cat's out of the bag with gene editing. I mean it's like out there, people are starting to try it out. I mean it's one. I feel like the story in science usually is like once you develop a technology, it's hard to kind of reel it back in once it once it's like benefits have been shown. Yeah. Well, anyway, let's move on to the night campus stuff. Right. Um, since I feel like that's like, you know, that's what we're all here for, right? Um, <laughs> um, maybe give us a brief update on what's going on, like kind of um, how is the building process going? How are is the various hiring positions going? Um, what's the state of the night campus as of today? Yeah, so, um, you know, I've been on the ground for a month now. Yeah. Um, I first just have to say it's just it's sort of exhilarating to join this effort when it's still very much in its formative stages, but it's moving full speed ahead. And and that's really due to the efforts of a lot of people that uh, were here before me uh, or are here. Uh, you know, the president, provost, um, the, the faculty leadership team that put together the vision that convinced uh, mm-hmm. uh, Penny and Phil Knight to make this really generous, extremely unique gift. I mean, people around the country really can't believe the opportunity we have here. Yeah. And, and that's due to both the size of the gift, but also the vision to be able to do something really innovative where we bring together uh, sciences, engineering, uh, humanities, and so forth to do something that's impactful for yeah. society. So that's just really exciting. That's what really brought me here uh, yeah. to, to do this. The state of where we are, um, you, you probably, I'm sure you've seen the, the hole in the ground over there. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, I've been looking at, my office is right next to it. I, I sort of look out once a week or every other day or so. And there hasn't been a lot of changes, but you're going to start to see a lot of changes now very quickly. So I was just looking out today. There's the conduits that are being laid down that are going to be in the foundation. Some of the pillars are there. Mm -hmm. I think we're going to lay the foundation, pour the foundation next week. And then there'll start to be some very rapid changes Mm -hmm. and basically on track to have that building completed in, in early 2020. So uh, believe it or not, even though the building's being built, there's still a lot of meetings that go on with the architects and making design yeah. decisions. So all that's going on. Professor Patrick Phillips is really continuing to take the lead on that and doing just a fantastic job. We are starting to look at doing some faculty hires. So we have two positions posted for the night campus. One of them is sort of a broad-based uh, open rank, which means it could be assistant professor up to full professor okay. in a variety of different areas. Um, and I'll tell you why. It's it's sort of broad at this this point. We got I think 240 applications for that position. Goodness, so, yeah, yeah, and a lot to uh, review and a lot of great candidates in yeah. there. And then there's a second position that just been posted for an endowed professorship, so a senior person sure. in neuroengineering. Mm. And so this would this wow. would uh, yeah it would link the really fantastic work going on here already in the neurosciences with yeah. someone that's more of a engineer tools and you know um, technology type person yeah are people where are these applicants coming from i mean all across the country is it mostly from around oregon 
is it international? Like what, where are you where are you getting the applications from? Yeah, so the the open rank one, um, the broad one, is a little bit ahead of the other one. So I, I've sure yeah, I've yeah, looked yeah. at those applicants yeah. and absolutely international. Uh, mm. They're all over the place. That's got to be a little daunting, yeah. <laughs> well, it's exciting. Yeah. Uh, I think it's really exciting that the world has uh, is paying attention to what we're doing here, and it's attracting a lot of interest and yeah. some, some really terrific people. So the reason that that is a, a broad call is that we're in the middle of a strategic planning process, which sounds really boring, but it's <laughs> and you know it, it is you know it's a little bit tedious to put together, <laughs> but also exciting because. You bring together a lot of people, um, and basically you brainstorm on you know what should be the focus areas. We have this opportunity, a little bit of a blank slate, yeah. to to do something new, and so you want to take lots of opinions on how to do that. Yeah. And so we've done uh, a bunch of interviews with people. We started with sort of phone interviews. Then last week we did a workshop that had 35 faculty leaders and administrators mm-hmm. from across the university's campus mm-hmm. get together for the day and uh, brainstorm around academic programs and research priorities. And then we have an external advisory board that we've put together with national leaders that are coming uh, in October. And they will also, they'll basically take the input from the internal group and further iterate on what are gonna be the things that Hmm. we're gonna really focus on. Right. And so that group is, uh, I'm really thrilled there too because just about everybody we invited to be on our advisory board said yes. And these are people. It's always that, a good sign. Yeah. It's a good sign. Yeah. <laughs> and the unanimous decision. Yeah. These are people that were former leaders at NIH. They're National Academy members. They're people that have done a lot of entrepreneurship and startup companies. Yeah. And so uh, looking forward to getting input from that group. What do you ultimately hope the Knight Campus will produce? The main two areas of the Knight Campus that I think we'll want to facilitate are convergence. And this idea of convergence is, again, the really exciting new discoveries are happening at the interfaces between traditional disciplines. Mm -hmm. And academic institutions, you know, for good reasons, are set up in these traditional structures. Yeah. But the research you want to facilitate having, you know, an integration of those. And the Knight Campus is going to do that. And we're going to basically accelerate the process of that happening, right? Instead of two molecules just randomly bumping together, we're going to bring them together yeah. and provide the, the energy for them to do something. Yeah. Um, and then the second part of it, that you know, that leads to good research and, and potentially good fundamental research with, with NIH and NSF. But then the process of taking those discoveries and making them come out and actually impact something in society mm. is where you run into this. You've probably heard of the valley of death, you know, and the ideas in the lab tend to die on the vine and mm. because there there isn't anything to sort of get them through that valley of death to the point that they're, you know, commercially viable idea. Right. And at that right. point, the companies take off with them. Right. Yeah. And we don't need to be involved in that. Yeah. But basically, um, taking those technologies and cultivating them uh, within the academic environment until they have enough value that the companies take them is something that Knight Campus will do. Yeah, totally. Um, I mean, are there going to be, I assume there will be, but the integration between some various companies and the Knight Campus? I mean, is that a relationship you're hoping to foster with the campus? Yeah, absolutely. That's something that's always been a part of what I've done throughout my career yeah. is, is work with companies. I think it's important for a number of reasons. One is that sometimes there's a misconception that all the good research is in the university. There's actually a lot of really good research being done in the private sector. Mm-hmm. And so interfacing with that is is uh, really important. It also provides job opportunities for our students. 
and sometimes funding. So, you know, the, the federal funding and, and the state funding are, uh, we you know, we hope will remain good, but they're, they're probably not going to go up a lot, right? And so the places that have great philanthropic support, like the Knight Campus, yeah. and uh, figure out how to work with the private sector are the ones that are going to be most impactful. Right, right. For the students and faculty that are already established here, what can those people expect to get out of the Knight Campus? Yeah, I mean, the Knight Campus is not going to be an isolated campus, right? Uh, we're already, uh, you know, I'm getting out, I'm meeting with uh, all the deans across campus and, and talking about how we can partner with uh, the School of Journalism, mm-hmm. uh, the Humanities, you know, bio bioethics groups and things mm-hmm. like that. You know, that those will be opportunities. We'll also be bringing in faculty that may be a little more on the technology end, but then again, that creates interfaces, right? Yeah. So if you're in if you're in biology or chemistry or physics, uh, and you're interested in working with uh, a technologist that maybe has tools, mm-hmm. then that'll provide that opportunity. Hmm. And now, obviously, you have an engineering background. Um, this Knight Campus is all about kind of molding and, and meshing with different fields of study. Is it is there a potential f- to create kind of a new division of the University of Oregon, some form of kind of engineering program? Is that in the works at all? Yeah, it's absolutely in the works. Um, you know, my intent when I came here was uh, to start a graduate program, and we're in discussions on how to do that exactly. It, it may involve a partnership with Oregon Health Sciences University. Okay. Because if you're thinking about it, you know, biomedical engineering program, uh, the word medical is right in there, right? So yeah, <laughs> we don't have a medical do school. Yeah. It's great to have that medical school involvement. I came from, you know, Georgia Tech, but yeah. Georgia Tech's biomedical engineering program is what we call a dual shield program in which it's a joint program between Georgia Tech and Emory. Ah, uh, right, and, okay. Uh, so that, that partnership made it a lot of sense because yeah. you had a technology university and a, and a medical school. We have a similar thing here, but to me it's even more compelling because, yes, we don't have a medical school, uh, so you know it makes sense for us to work with OHSU. Mm-hmm. But they don't have undergraduate programs. They, they don't have the sciences. They don't have the humanities. And so they're also very interested in working with us. So I think, yeah. I think that's a potential opportunity. Yeah, there's a lot of, I think there's already a lot of cross, crossover between UO students and OHSU students. I feel like there's always people like doing a summer class down there. Or people are coming back here to shadow or whatnot. I mean, I've talked to friends who want to go to medical school down there. So I think you know, the relationship between there will be that'll be a good thing to kind of foster and build on yeah and of um, course they have the night cancer institute as well and so true, you know, yeah. then the, there'll be you know night to night collaborations also make a lot of sense one of the first things i did was reach out to uh folks at ohsu i actually had several friends there already and we worked out me to have an adjunct appointment so mm. I, I already have an adjunct appointment okay uh, at ohsu cool um well Almost out of time here, so I'm going to get some quick hitters, and then we'll get you out sure. of here. What was your luckiest break as a scientist? Hmm. Oh, boy, that's a good question. Um, so many things along the way. I, I think probably when I was very early on getting in and working with uh, a guy named Steve Goldstein, who was at the University of Michigan, a, 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 one of the fathers of bioengineering, and uh, he gave me my first opportunities to get mm. exposed to this field. Yeah. And so, you know, my advice to students is not to stress too much about any one decision that they make as they're going through, but just mm-hmm. to keep your eyes open and, and follow your interests. Right. And that was an example of, of that happening. I also, you know, recently 
took a technology all the way through to a company and, and it's now a, a back uh, fusion technology that's in thousands of patients. And I think in, in that case, it was really, um, again, getting together with a material scientist and us uh, talking about a market need and, and working towards that. Yeah. What was your most embarrassing mistake as a scientist? Huh. Oh, boy. <laughs> most, most embarrassing mistake. Um, hmm. I'm going to have to take a pass on that. I can't Uh-oh. think of anything right now. <laughs> <laughs> okay, sure. Yeah, you just want to get I'll get you another one here. Um, why should someone want to be um, a bioengineer or a scientist in general? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's a great way to take your interest in math and science and apply it to uh, areas that are going to make a big impact in society and, and in people. I, you know, if, if you have those two interests, there's I don't think there's no, any other way to, to uh, do it that's better. You know, if I look at my own career, I keep taking positions where I can continue to work at that interface. Yeah. And so uh, uh, with as much credit, you know, to President Schill uh, as I can give, I don't know that I'll ever be a president because then I would have to stop doing uh, the research right. that I love. Right, exactly. Um, last question here. When you tell people that you're a bioengineer, um, are there misconceptions that you have to deal with and how do you deal with them? Misconceptions. Like when you say yeah. you're a bioengineer, like people will be like, oh, you do blank and that's not true. Like, what Do you get that a lot? Yeah, I, I would say one misconception, this is a one that students often think about, is is, is they're going in, if, if you go in and there's a choices between, say, mechanical, electrical, biochemical, whatever, they think, well, you know, bio is going to be the easier path, hmm. and, and it's not. It's hmm. actually very rigorous hmm. uh, technology now, so... It's it's not an easy path, but it but if your interests are at that interface, uh, <laughs> biology and engineering, I think it's a great path to take. Well, uh, Bob, thanks so much for coming in today. Really appreciate it, and uh, best of luck with everything going forward with the Knight Campus. Real pleasure, Franklin. Thank you. Great. That was our first episode of season three of Spotlight on Science. Thanks again to Dr. Goldberg for being our guest today. I'm Frankie Lewis. If you'd like to recommend a member of the UO Science community for us to interview, leave us a comment on SoundCloud or at thedailyemerald.com. The music in this episode is Zombie Disco by Six Umbrellas, which we found on freemusicarchive.org. To hear more from the Emerald Podcast Network, you can subscribe on iTunes and SoundCloud, and listen to these episodes right on the Emerald homepage at dailyemerald.com. Thank you for listening.
します。